0: You're listening to The Best Of, The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the
1: LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao.
2: It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Happy holidays. I'm in an... Uh... A really, uh, you know, good mood. I'm in a good mood. I'm also in a, you know, just blah mood. Sometimes at the end of the year, you just uh, can't believe that the year's gone by so quickly. Right, Fong? Yes. <laughs> You're going to turn another year old. That's a good thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't sound excited about that. Yeah, because I, I keep making this go. Um, I want to get my grad degree before I turn like 20-something, 26, <laughs> 27, something like that. Well, uh, newsflash for you, you're never too old to continue education and to learn. So don't beat yourself up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just because um, my long term is to get my PhD, although I don't have any any idea of what I want to do with it. Wow. You'll figure it out. That's all I know. I'm glad that you've got a young, vibrant mind. Uh, <laughs> if you've been tuning in this holiday season, then you know that we've been doing a series of interviews with LGBT pioneers. And this is a, a special program in partnership with open house, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. And uh, some of those resources include housing and community programs um, and a uh, I really wanted to do something that gave exposure to issues that impact the queer senior community and also a reason to not forget our pioneers. I think it's always so important to go back into history, but also to hear from people who may not be your specific age. And uh, so I'm very, very, very honored to be doing this with Open House. If you are considering making a donation to a charity this holiday season, please make one to Open House by visiting openhouse-sf.org. Our guest today is Neil Sims, who happens to be um, a board member and former board president of Open House, and his current role is a mayoral appointee as commissioner for the Department of Aging and Adult Services for the city and county of San Francisco. So let's welcome Neil Sims to the program. Neil, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me.
2: Um, and well, well I, I mean, I have so many things, and, you know, your service and your time and your commitment to making sure that our community, our aging community are taken care of. Um, let's start by though, I mean, uh, you know, I've started all these interviews with, with his, some historical context and that begins with your childhood. Is it okay if we ask, you know, w- where you grew up and what life was like as a kid?
0: Sure, yeah. So I'm a native Californian. I grew up in Fresno in the farm region, actually in Clovis, uh, kind of a, you might refer to it as a subsidiary of Fresno, but uh, farm kid, grew up in agriculture, uh, spent most of my early life in the central part of California, um, built a company out there, sold it, and moved to San Francisco in 1990.
2: We have something in common. I mean, I'm not from Clovis or Fresno, uh, but I'm from Stockton, or I grew up in Stockton, so that Central Valley life is somewhat familiar to me.
0: Yes, I I spent many years in Modesto, so not too far away.
2: So, you know, moving out to San Francisco in 1990, San Francisco had just gone through an incredible political climate when it came to LGBT rights, but what was it like for you as a newbie?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, um, I was married, Michelle, for much of my early life. Mm -hmm. uh, Came out in my early 30s and moved to San Francisco um, really after a lot of that upheaval, kind of at the end of the AIDS epidemic. uh, Not at the end, but certainly um, past the zenith of the fear and the unknown around HIV and AIDS. Um, So I came into a city that was more subdued. Um, not the, um, sort of outrageous period of the eighties, um, a different climate sort of kind of in, in response to, uh, the trauma that hit the city back in those years. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Right. You mentioned, you know, being married and uh, kind of chuckled there. And and to me, there have been many stories of gay men who came out later in life who had had families. And, um, you know, if you don't mind telling us about that experience in just um, being able to come out and live in San Francisco, what that was like for you, that would be great.
0: Well, i yeah, it happened to i'm um I, I was married for about ten years. I have two children who are grown. I have grandchildren now. Um, but new you know I grew up in a very conservative environment where being gay and being out back in those years was um not something that was easy to do, and uh, so really kind of lived a kind of confused life back then. Um, finally reached a point where it just didn't make sense for me to continue to pretend to be someone I wasn't. So um, made that separation. Um, to be quite frank, my former spouse is a dear friend today, and um, uh, we enjoy uh, what I consider to be a great, positive, uh, supportive relationship, uh, even though it was a struggle. Uh, back in the 70s and the 80s to figure out um, how to relate to each other and, and and what our path forward should be once I came out and we got a divorce.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing. I just always think it's it's important to share those stories, especially when there are members of our community who might be going through the same thing. And so I think, you know, coming out and living your life authentically also contributes to the fact that you became a contributing member to our community. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, you're a board member of Open House, but um, I, I think that your activism and your contribution stems uh, even prior to that.
0: Well, yeah, I've always, I've always been active. I, I, I live, I think, um, with a sort of baseline philosophy, Michelle, that that we need to find ways to leave the world a little better than we found it. And mm-hmm. there are plenty of opportunities to do that, plenty of places to serve and, and make contributions that are important ones. Uh, in the last 10 or 12 years, um, much of my attention and my focus has been around LGBT aging and the issues that, um, make it more challenging, frankly, to um, become older in, uh, in, a, in the American society if you're gay or lesbian.
2: Well, let's let's dive into that. Let's jump into that and the first thing that comes to my mind in making it difficult to age here would be because of uh financial reasons. I mean, you know, uh, rent, I don't even think. I don't know anyone who can actually afford rent in San Francisco unless you're piling bodies on top of each other. Um but well, you know, that that's my guess and and what would be yours yeah. or you don't even have to guess. You know.
0: Yeah, well, you know, um the economics of aging for the LGBT community is certainly a challenge. um, And it's, it's um, further exacerbated maybe by uh, the economic realities of being uh, LGBT in the American workforce. Uh, Certainly there are, there's plenty of data out there uh, to support the, um, uh, the impact that being a woman has in, in being in the workforce, uh, even if a couple is, uh, two women are in the workforce together, their combined income is going to be statistically lower than their male counterparts. Um, and in some cases, that certainly has had an impact on the gay male population as well. So you factor in the trans community, it's, it's, for, it's more exacerbated so the economic issue is is definitely a question, but the other probably um, key differentiator is one of family. Um, you know, I was married for ten years, am blessed to have children, but in American society, the the next generation is called upon to provide first line defense and and provide a certain um, safety net function for their parents and grandparents,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that's true worldwide, but it's certainly true here in America, the gay community, especially the population who are aging now, in large part don't have the advantage of children. So they're aging without that next generation of familial support that might otherwise step up and, and bridge many of the gaps they face with uh, physical impairment, cognitive challenges, the things that happen to all of us as we age.
2: Right. And so, you know, to follow up on that, when a good number of our aging community uh, goes into care, for example, or or institutions who provide care, uh, are they always ready to serve LGBT people?
0: No. As a matter of fact, um, one of the earliest premises of Open House uh, at its kind of founding years was to create a a bridge function as an agency. We knew that we were unable, as a nonprofit, to reach all of the needs throughout the entire community, but there are many well-meaning service organizations, businesses, nonprofits, uh, government agencies serving LGBT seniors along with other seniors in the community. So we provided a cultural competency training program and continue to do that today that um, makes a powerful difference um, on the professional side of the aging industry, if you will, to help existing organizations in the mainstream adapt, assimilate, and understand the needs that are unique to LGBT seniors um, as they populate their, their organizations, Um, their service programs, their medical uh, programs, and the like.
2: Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Neil Sims, who is a board member and former board president of Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to the LGBTQ senior community. He's also the commissioner for the Department of Aging and Adult Services for the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, Neil, I wanted to, uh, you know, talk about your position as commissioner for the Department of Aging and Adult Services here in this city and how the city that deals with our aging community. Uh, what are some specific uh, issues or challenges that this city and county faces when it comes to our senior community?
0: Well, uh, first, let me make one small uh, correction. There, I'm sorry. Michelle, I am a, I am a commissioner for the City and County of San Francisco. I'm a mayoral appointee to a body that provides uh, citizen oversight to a very robust and significant uh, agency within the city and county serving very large numbers of seniors um, from all walks of life across our community, um, largely focused on seniors that are in more challenging economic situations. So um, I guess the common thread might be from from a Department of Aging and Adult Services Point of view is how to navigate the economic challenges that seniors face living in our in our city.
2: Got it, uh, Neil. We're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, what I'd like to do is then ask the same question when it comes to the LGBT senior community. So you'll stay around with us. Sure. The Michelle Mial Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
0: You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the
1: Michelle Miao show.
2: It's Michelle Miel. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy holidays. Uh, we have a special program that we are producing in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that provides resources for our LGBTQ senior community. And uh, our guest with us today is Neil Sims, who is a board member for Open House. And um, I just you know, he made that correction for me earlier. He is a commissioner for the Department of Aging and Adult Services for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, So, Neil, right before the break, I mentioned I wanted to ask you, you know, the same kind of questions in terms of specific issues that LGBT senior uh, seniors may be facing. I know that, you know, there are lots of statistics that show as members of the queer community, we uh, have a higher uh, chance of of smoking cigarettes or, you know, drinking alcoholic drinks as we get together with our friends. Uh, We also, you may be more susceptible to depression, especially around the holiday season. Uh, I'm sure you can tell us all about it. Uh,
0: I tell us all about it. Well, I don't know that I can do that, but I can certainly (laughs) comment um, from the open house perspective on some of the risk factors that we recognize that our community faces um, you know, I mentioned early family earlier that family infrastructure is a sort of go-to resource for uh, the traditional American family as we age. In the gay community, that's not necessarily the case. So um, many seniors face things like isolation in large numbers as they age. Um, they're dependent upon their peer group, but, you know, in most cases... Peer groups are of similar age, so the age cohort is all aging collectively at the same rate at about the same stage of life. So it becomes increasingly difficult for an LGBT senior to stay connected to the outside world, stay connected to society, participate, um, seek out uh, the sort of assistance that he or she might need, Uh, nutrition issues become problematic. Uh, because isolation and insulation from the broader community becomes such a significant challenge.
2: If we apply that to the changes that San Francisco is facing, the landscape of gay, the gay community, I mean, even in the Castro, um, it feels like at least there's less of us who are congregating in the actual neighborhood. And, and um, you know, kind of what are your, your thoughts? Does that contribute to isolation, the deteriorating gay neighborhood that we once used to all hang out in?
0: Well, certainly, it's a contributing factor, but I think um, the the physical uh, challenges that someone who is aging at a certain point faces are are primary. I mean, you know, if if you have mobility challenges, walking is a challenge. Um, sitting for long periods of time, um, uh, the other kinds of of issues that just present themselves when you reach a point in your life of some level of frailty, um, it's more challenging, even if the neighborhood isn't fragmented, uh, it's, it's challenging just to get outside of your residence. So um, if someone isn't proactively visiting you, um, investing themselves in you in a more assertive way... Um, it's not uncommon for an LGBT senior to find themselves alone.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As we uh, wind down our interview, um, I'd like to turn our attention to the future and the you know those of us who can impact the future and address these issues now. Um, obviously, Open House is a one of a kind organization. I w- yeah, I I don't know if we're doing enough, though. Uh, I think that that's a a very personal opinion, but what do you think of my statement of saying that? I don't think we're doing enough.
0: Well, I think there's a lot more to do. Um, the I would agree with you completely. Um, Open House is running many, many programs serving um, several thousand seniors a year in a number of ways, but that's the tip of the iceberg. There are There are projected to be between thirty and forty thousand seniors over the age of sixty in San Francisco by twenty twenty, so uh, LGBT seniors, um, that's a large population of people, um, and you know we've been talking a lot about um, income challenges and low and moderate income seniors as a part of the theme of this conversation. But even seniors in the gay community who are of high net worth um, still will struggle with mobility challenges, cognitive challenges, isolation issues. So um, the kinds of things that we need to address from a mission point of view are broad spectrum and cross our community at all income levels. Um, and we really do need to be building out this infrastructure of, of professional support and volunteer support at a service level that helps us meet those needs.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, uh, because I know in your professional life, you do work with uh, large companies and companies um, in which uh, now during marriage equality and the fight for it, and even post-marriage equality, lots of corporations are taking an interest in LGBTQI issues. Do you feel that uh, their interests are inclusive of the aging community?
0: Yes, I do. I'm in contact regularly with with thought leadership in, uh, executive capacities and companies here in the Bay Area who are, uh, quite interested and, in, and, um, and already engaging in, um, financial support, in volunteer support with their, um, uh, their queer organizations internally within their companies, uh, volunteering with Open House. Um, there are many ways for companies to engage and, and those opportunities are being explored proactively.
2: Neil, I want to thank you for joining us here on the program and for helping us navigate and discuss uh, issues that impact the senior community. And also thank you for your service um, regarding Open House and what you do for our aging community.
0: Well, thank you for having us. Thank you for highlighting Open House. I personally believe it's a very important work, uh, especially with the baby boomer population maturing uh, as we are. Uh, this is the right time for us to be building out these services and and this infrastructure.
2: Neil Sims, everyone, Uh, and uh, again, what Neil is referring to is our partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that provides resources to the LGBT senior community. So please consider making a tax-deductible donation right now by visiting uh, openhouse-sf.org. We're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll continue our program and interview another fascinating individual and uh, who we can consider as an LGBT pioneer. So don't go away.
4: Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you.
1: Spotlight on success and achievement brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Miao show.
2: Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us and happy holidays. Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and we're continuing our special program in partnership with Open House. Uh, Open House is a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to the LGBTQ senior community. And so if you're thinking about making a donation to a charity, please consider Open House and you can visit openhouse-sf.org to make that donation. So uh, in, in partnership with Open House this holiday season, we're interviewing a series of LGBT pioneers to uh, give exposure and uh, to the LGBTQ senior community. So our next guest is Jeff Louie, who is on the board of the Horizons Foundation and has been for nine years and was chair of the board. So Jeff, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you, Michelle. It was nice to talk to you.
2: Yes, it's very, very nice to talk to you. Um, I, I've, uh, you know, been starting all of these interviews by going way back, and so if it's okay with you, I'd love to hear, you know, where you grew up and what, you, what, what you were like as a young little Jeff. <laughs>
5: well, I was, <clears throat> I, I was raised in Chicago, in the Chicago area, in the suburbs, and uh, I'm now seventy three, so that was a long time ago. And, um, I was a smart kid, but I was a little kid, you said, and that's really true. I was the shortest kid in my class until I was like a sophomore in high school. So,
2: yeah, I was going to say your voice now doesn't sound like you're little it feels like you've (laughs) grown up Um,
5: on the shorter side, but it's not a big deal. Um, anyway, I was, uh, had a really nice family environment and was successful in school and I was, a springboard diver, so I was a uh, successful in school athletics and came out really when I was a freshman in college.
2: Mm. That
5: would be about nineteen sixty. And I came out to myself because in those days of course if you were gay you were supposed to be depressed. You had to come to a bad end. And of course McCarthy and his era of the government pinko kami gay uh idea and that they, you could be blackmailed and all that sort of stuff was still very much in the air.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, but it didn't seem to affect me very much. I had my own self-respect and I was happy and uh, was in a loving family and had a bunch of friends. But And I think the key to that is that gay was not my only identity. I know, and I think in those days when you were gay, you were supposed to be just gay. You couldn't be anything else. Right. That isn't true. We all have multiple identities and always have. So I was fine, and I even after I came out, I didn't feel that what I was doing or what I felt was wrong. It felt too good and too right, and I never believed others who said it was bad or sinful. There wasn't a lot of organized religion in my life, so that um, I was spared that problem.
2: hmm Um, I I wanted to ask really quickly, uh, you said you came out in 1960 uh, during college. Where did you go to college?
5: I went to Harvard, and so Boston was my um, opening to a gay life. And there were a couple of gay bars, but it was pretty closeted, pretty much under the radar. And uh, that was kind of what we did. We we knew that there was a sort of subculture, and we could— do okay as long as we kept our two lives apart.
2: Did you uh, fall in love during this time uh, in college at Harvard? And
5: <laughs> Not really. Um, I was uh, too busy playing the field.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. For some reason, I, I'm trying to picture you and I'm imagining this incredibly uh, good looking, handsome, tall, athletic, uh, preppy guy. Am I wrong?
5: <laughs> well, I'm a short athletic guy.
2: At that time, at that time, yeah. Yeah.
5: But uh, that was how it was. We lived under the radar. And, uh, in fact, it never occurred to me when I was in college that I would go back home and live in Chicago, partly because the winters are brutal and partly because um, I would have had social obligations to my family and relatives and friends in Chicago, and I wasn't clear how I was going to keep a gay life and straight life separate. So I thought the easiest thing to do would be to be to live somewhere else. So I moved to New York, and I was there for a number of years. Then I came to California in 19—well, sometime between 1967 and 72, because I was traveling back and forth. And um, this just seemed like magic to me and was really just a fabulous place. So
2: Where? I decided to yeah.
5: settle here in California.
2: So in California, you mean San Francisco?
5: Well, I was on the peninsula for four or five years and then moved into the city.
2: Um, where were you in 69 or, or where were you when Stonewall happened?
5: Um, I was actually in Hong Kong. I was working for Transworld Airlines, which at the time was a great job. And I was posted to Hong Kong and lived over there for two years. So I missed Kent State and Stonewall and all that stuff, except as Um, I heard about it in the newspapers or when I went home. And, in fact, Stonewall didn't seem like much uh, much of an event. It was sort of like a big uproar, but it wasn't seen at the time as a precursor of a sea change in the way people behaved and the way other people saw gay people. I think that's the key thing is we didn't change. Other people began to notice us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some ways, it was easier in the earlier days because people didn't um, put two and two together. They just didn't notice that you behaved in certain ways or were seen in certain places and that sort of thing. And later, they became a lot more aware. And then we began to see more backlash, actually, I think, after that than we had before.
2: How did that impact your life once you you came back um from Hong Kong and and I mean were you were you I mean you had always you'd been out it sounds like but did you become active in the community?
5: I became active in the community in the 70s when I was here really the Briggs initiative is what catapulted me into being an activist for gay affairs and you know LGBT affairs in general because it seemed pretty horrific that anybody would want to uh, fire teachers just because they were presumed to be gay without even knowing whether they were gay, even. So um, I began to give money and go to house parties and stuff like that and realized that there was a lot of work to be done, and so I've been doing it ever since.
2: Yeah. Uh you know obviously the Briggs initiative for us in California and especially in San Francisco uh, a very specific politician comes to mind who um was also you know in, in fighting against this initiative and that's Harvey Milk. Uh mm-hmm. you know you obviously rem- remember Harvey Milk and what yep. you know life was like in San Francisco at that time, right?
5: Right. My feeling though is that the guy who was really As important as Harvey was George Moscone as the mayor, he was the one who put gay people into appointed positions. He was the one who kind of changed the tone at City Hall, and Harvey was the beneficiary of that. And, of course, Harvey wasn't around long enough to have a long-term effect. He certainly um, deserves his place as an icon, and he, he was very important because he told everybody to come out, and that was the right thing to do. And that's the way that we have been able to get other people to first tolerate and then accept us and respect us is by um, showing our true selves, which, as I'm, as you can see, I didn't do until later, in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the uh, city did a lot. And, in fact, um, even though I am, like many gay people, a Democrat, um nice that governor reagan came out against the briggs initiative too which he did and right. it was good that it failed and then i think actually we probably took comfort from that that we in retrospect was a bad idea because it, it meant that we didn't uh gear up for the backlash that occurred in the subsequent years
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the uh in you know in the 70s as we examine politics especially here in San Francisco the uh, assassination of Harvey Milk white night riots and and all of that yeah i i'm i wonder you know how that impacted you personally
5: well it was a, 1978 was a very bad year we had both the assassination of Moscone and Milk but also the Jonestown was that same year so the city itself was in a pretty depressed mood for a while and then Um, After the Briggs Initiative, I started working with a group that was putting together a handbook for uh, gay and lesbian sexuality to be used in high school family life classes, and we did that, and it was adopted by a number of schools, so we thought we were making some progress because we knew education was a key element, but um, then our friends started to die, and that was the beginning of the AIDS crisis, and it was clear that that was top priority, so we never made a second edition of that book, and we put all our energies into keeping our friends alive. And Mm -hmm. it was a scary time because you'd see someone you knew well, and they'd look pale, sort of a gray skin color, and you'd think, oh, my God, I'm not going to see him again. And I lost more than 200 friends. Mm -hmm. So um, I had a very tough time with my address book at that point. Until I realized that one way to remember them, rather than just scratch them out of the book, I put their names on business cards and put them in a little leather box, and I still have the box.
2: So when you see like um, you know HBO uh, specials uh, and and movies and articles about uh, what life was like in the '80s for a lot of gay men, are they pretty accurate?
5: Yeah, it was a tough time. I mean, we soldiered on and did our daily activities, whatever it was. I mean, we were all working and and uh, <clears throat> having some entertaining, but um, it was a little spooky because you never knew who was going to be next. And of course, there was no test for whether you were positive or not until 1988. And so the, almost all the 80s were under this cloud of not knowing whether tomorrow you'd wake up sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I was lucky because I met my partner now husband in 1979 and we've been together 36 years so that um we both are reasonably sure that the reason we're alive is because we were partnered
2: Mm-hmm. congratulations uh, by the way that is so incredible 30 <laughs> well you know
5: why we always tease people because we say you know it just proves that gay relationships don't last
2: yeah. <laughs> Michelle Miao, I'm speaking with Jeff Louie who is sharing his, his life story with us. And this is in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides services to the LGBTQ senior community. And uh, part of the reason why I'm really excited about this program that we're doing is because we can, you know, share the life of a pioneer, someone who... Uh, has contributed so much to our movement. And so, Jeff, you know, I you, you talked a lot about the, the 80s and HIV and, and, and how that impacted our community. So much has changed now in 2015. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, how do you, in in your own words, move on from that after losing you said earlier you lost 200 friends uh, from that depressing era to now this complete different 180 of of celebrating lgbtq life
5: well, I, I think it's about 120 degrees not 180 because we still have people doing terrible things and um we still have lots of work to do to get equality and in education and to to get rid of discrimination and bullying in housing and public accommodations and employment. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And in fact, um, one of the projects that Horizons has been doing, which I think is really interesting, is that this is also San Francisco is a center for um, handling and welcoming gay and LGBT uh, refugees and asylees from the Middle East and Africa. And uh, if I were uh, a gay person in Uganda or the Cameroon Mm -hmm. that was being discriminated against and was, in fact, in peril of my life, and I fled, um, I can't think of any place I'd rather come than to San Francisco where the general tolerance level is so high that um, it's just a completely safe place. So um, that's one of the new issues that's coming up, and we never know what's going to be next. There will always be some new thing that wasn't thought of. One of my friends says uh, that he, if he had been doing his estate planning in 1977 or 8, he would never have considered that, that he would need to support AIDS charities. I mean, it didn't exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: So we continue to go through these changes and yes, we've made a lot of progress, but we also have um, the pressure both nationally and locally and internationally against our continued progress. Um, I think the election next year is going to be pivotal because of what uh, the direction that America will take and will in, in leading the world in these directions. So mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. important that we stay on it and not. Um, not slide back, and certainly don't sit back. We are not done.
2: <laughs> right, right. I, I want to touch on that. And that was, you know, I was hoping to touch on that in the second half of our interview, but I'll go ahead and jump into it. Um, there's this sense, uh, you know, from the younger generation uh, where we were assimilating, and, and we may not, we obviously did not live the time um, to see such... The, the to see and experience the movement go through such a difficult period right mm-hmm. and so our perspective is very uh i think at times um, ignorant <laughs> 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 is that cynical of me to think that
5: no i think it's a, i think it's right that that's the context in which younger people live i think they will find that that isn't as true as they get older um and um, I think I kind of look at it a little in a, in a slightly different angle that I think makes sense to younger people because I spend a lot of time talking to people of all generations about what we should be doing next. I mean, having been in this fight for so long, people often ask me, you know, what do you think we should do or what should we be up to? And I always have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but the the trick is that... Um, well, I'll give you an example. I'm also Jewish, but <clears throat> as a person of the Jewish faith, I may I want to spend some time with people who are culturally like me. And so there are Jewish old-age homes, there are Episcopal old-age homes, Lutheran old-age homes. If I, if I end up in a home, I want to be with my kind. So I will assimilate in many ways, but I also want to be among my cohort. Mm-hmm and so that will always be the case and so there will always be new young people who of course first when they come out they have to find the tribe they don't they aren't born into it as if they were let's say um you know Irish they when you're Irish you get the Irish culture as you're growing up because your parents are Irish but as a gay person you aren't given any um tutoring or education in your culture by your biological family, you have to find it from your family of choice, in effect. And so that means that it's a little bit different for us. And And we still find that the, what do I call them, the socializing institutions of schools and churches and that sort of thing are often not aligned with our interests. So we have to create our own institutions, mm-hmm. and that will go on forever. I mean, there are Catholic schools, Jewish schools, um, and that will will stay. So there will need to be places for LGBT young people and for um, health care and for elders and for um, legal rights and then what I and many other people call lived equality as opposed to just legal equality which is that there's the expectation that you will be properly treated by everybody.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
5: We don't have that yet.
2: We don't.
5: So we need to keep our community moving forward to work in that direction. But in effect, we will never fully assimilate. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. I don't think um, you ask anybody who has pride in their ethnic heritage, that they're not going to give it up. It's an addition to who they are, not a limitation
2: I, I exactly uh, understand what you're talking about, and I concur as a as a, an Asian American nonconforming lesbian. <laughs> right. um, Jeff, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to continue our discussion. I want to talk about uh, your marriage, and also I want to talk about the changing San Francisco landscape. So don't go with us, or don't go away, okay? I'll be here. All right, Thank the you. Michelle Miao show continues right after this. <laughs>
0: You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao show.
2: It's Michelle Meow, you're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Happy Holidays. We're continuing our special partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that provides services to the LGBTQ senior community. And uh, we're producing a series of interviews with LGBTQ pioneers. And that's an effort to bring um, exposure to the issues that impact the queer senior community. Our guest today is Jeff Louie, who has uh, been sharing his Uh, life story. And uh, he is a board member for Horizons or Horizons uh, Foundation. Um, You know, Jeff, I wanted to talk to you about the changing landscape of San Francisco, the politics, the economic landscape even of the city and how that might have changed or impacted you, especially now as a married gay man to someone you've been with for 36 years.
5: Well, it's been a wonderful place to be and um we weren't sure when it first began that it would stay as i mentioned earlier george moscone kind of put uh, a lot of momentum into the development of the gay community as a political entity in san francisco and uh i always remember him for that because it was a um kind of a first and there was a lot of backlash even here in san francisco as dan white certainly exhibited but um I'll give you a little story. Jim Hormel, who helped found the Hormel Center at the public library, um, wrote into the contract that with the library when he gave a major donation to help found it was that if anything happened to the political climate, that the materials in the center would go back to the gay community and would not be hostage to a political backlash. So even then we thought we don't know if this is going to continue. We've been very fortunate that here in San Francisco it has. I'm proud to call Mark Leno a good friend and he's one of the people who's made his way up through the political spectrum. And in particular, it was interesting in the early years of the 80s, most of our um, gay politicians were women because so many men who were on the political ladder fell off and died that the lesbians were the ones who supported the community. And I also think it was um, one of the few good things about AIDS is that it helped reestablish better relations between lesbians and gay men because the feminist end of lesbianism was uh, difficult to deal with in the early days. Mm. And now um, I think we're a lot better integrated um, among LGB and T LGBT, um, because of the fact that we had to fight together during the age years. But since then, it's been a, a really nice thing. My husband, partner and I both at the time um, signed up as domestic partners, and we're delighted to have those rights, and um, it began to feel more and more comfortable and more and more accepting here in San Francisco. And then um, we fought hard against Prop 8, but we lost until we got the court to change their mind. And then we were among the couples that got married in 2008 during what we call the window between the time when the state Supreme Court said that um, that Prop 8 was unconstitutional and that, right. or, well,
2: you were in that lingo period.
5: Yeah between the time when the court made its ruling and prop eight that's what i should say yeah and <clears throat> so we were already safely married when it got to be bad news again and we're thrilled to see that it finally um happened uh, this year but none of us thought that it was going to happen that fast either we the kind of the strategy that all of us were using was that we were going to continue to acquire one state at a time or a couple of states at a time through legislative or judicial uh, efforts state by state until we got a lot closer to um, the, a majority. And then we might be able to get the Supreme Court to do the right thing. We, we didn't, did not expect the district courts, the federal district courts, to do the job for us and push the total number of states that had gay marriage from something like 13 or 14 to 35 in a matter of a couple of years, at which point the court could, quote, wisely, quote, follow public opinion Mm -hmm. to um, give the ruling that they did this year. So
2: that's
5: what was kind of an interesting thing. And having gotten there, in effect, a little bit quicker, now it's even more obvious that employment, housing, and Uh, public accommodation are lagging behind, and I'm very much in favor of the Equality Act that's been proposed and hope that it may pass, although doing that at a national level is certainly going to be difficult because the people in the flyover states still don't love us. There's no question about that.
2: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, I wanted, you know, as we uh, wind down our interview, I wanted to also ask you, because I know you do some work with uh, the HIV AIDS community, um, and if we reflect on that, plus the aging community, uh, how, how are people aging with HIV today?
5: Well, not being a positive myself, I... I'm really not sure. I mean, they seem to be doing pretty well, and certainly it seems more like a chronic disease than a uh, death sentence, but um, it's still difficult, and I uh, think there's still work to be done. We still have our fingers crossed for a a Mm -hmm. cure and or a vaccine. But the other thing that's happened is that those of us who are still working as elders are working harder to reach down a little farther. Usually the people that you work with um, in your life cycle are, let us say, maybe 10 years, 15 years younger than you are. But that generation is mostly missing. So I spend more time with people who are 20 years or 25 years younger than I am because um, they are the ones moving into the positions of power and authority and and uh, rising to the top of their various ladders, but it's a—it makes it a little more—I won't say difficult, but it's a little more important for us as elders to reach further down, rather than just the people we would normally hang out with, because mm-hmm. um, y- you go through a progression, and the only reason that we get to be wiser as we get older is that we've gotten beaten up. A few more times than people yeah. who are younger, yeah. so we have a little bit more experience.
2: Yeah, but and but,
5: if you're, those people are missing, then they don't have the experience.
2: Going back to you know our discussion um, around the changing landscape of San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know I was thinking about this the other day and in, in walking around the Castro, the gay neighborhood. Um. There could be a day when the majority of the residents of the Castro are not LGBT, but at least we have the gay uh, flag and we have the sidewalks. I think the bars will maybe they'll decline because of increased rent or, or, you know, leasing is just not available. Do you ever think about the decline of the gay neighborhood and what that might potentially look like in the future?
5: Um, well, yeah, the gay neighborhood will will continue, I think, to um, change. I'm not sure it's a decline. It will be less of a ghetto because we were safe in the Castro for a long time when we weren't really welcome in other parts of town, and now we are. And there are now more and more people who are um, LGBT and LGBT tolerant everywhere so that we can enjoy the whole city. We don't have to just hang out in our own neighborhood and also the can people think of it as sort of being static at an earlier time but when i first came to san francisco in the mid-60s it was quite different than it was in the mid-70s and again in the mid-80s so um it's going to change all neighborhoods continue mm-hmm. to change in san francisco i think because it is um such an icon for tourists and for what and the LGBT community, there's a certain sense of let's stop time and make it just the best as it ever was. But I don't think you'll ever get two people to agree on when the best time actually was. <laughs>
2: yeah.
5: Some people will say 1967. Others will say, no, it must have been 1974.
2: No, it yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah.
5: the answer is the best of times is now, to quote the old song.
2: Yeah. And, I I, uh, I mean, and, and thank you for giving me that very positive perspective because I think you're right. There are other neighborhoods that um, queer people have moved into that weren't queer before. You know, right. that that also extends across the Bay Bridge and or the Golden Gate Bridge.
5: Exactly. Well, there, they think there are um, something like 400,000 gay people in the Bay Area. I mean, I've heard that number. I, don't quote me on it. <laughs> but um, they're everywhere. We're going to Christmas dinner with good friends who live in the Oakland Hills yeah okay fine right you know it's not like oh dear we're um, um, transgressing by going across (laughs) and I tell people I have a Visa to all nine Bay Area counties, and they laugh, but they (laughs) they realize it's got some truth to it.
2: I have one last question. I have less than a minute left, and it's very quick. Uh, But, you know, you serve on the board for Horizons Foundation, which has been giving back to the community for a really long time. When we think about building a sustainable future for the queer community, um, you know, where should the money go?
5: Well, we would love to have people give bequests to Horizons or just give money to Horizons because they know more about what's going on in the nine-county area than anyone else. And they have given $35 million away over 35 years. This year we gave away $3.5 million. So there's plenty of opportunity to spread that money to all the organizations. One of the things I like best about Horizons is that it is – it knows a lot more about the community than I do.
4: Mm
2: So
5: I let them
2: uh, (laughs) decide where to put it. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing a piece of view with all of our listeners.
5: Thank you, Michelle.
2: Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Happy holidays. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, head to michellemeow.com.